I mentioned uh, a minute ago that uh, Jennifer and I were in New Orleans in, in the recent days. Um, whenever we go down there, there's just, just a few places we like to kind of frequent. One of them, uh, if you're familiar, there's a, there's a street called Royal Street, lots of antique shops on Royal Street. There's one antique uh, store on Royal that is uh, it's, it's a pretty fascinating place. It's really more like a gallery where you can walk through and see just incredibly rare, expensive items. I mean, everywhere you look is something new and different. Well, one of the things they carry there uh, is, um, is uh, fine art. Now, and I, I don't, you know, I'm not really a, a, an art critic or anything, but I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Like all these names that I heard of growing up. Well, there was, uh, last time we were there, there was a, uh, a couple of pieces by uh, Claude Monet. He's a big deal. You know, I know I've heard of him, right? Well, so I'm, I'm very interested to see these original art, uh, works of art by Claude Monet. So we come up on one of them, and actually, I, I got a picture of it I want us to, to see here for the sake of perspective. This is one of the Monets they had at uh, the antique store. And uh, keep in mind now, this is an antique store, not a museum. These things are for sale. So you could actually, you know, you could walk out with this thing under your arm if you uh, so choose. And you can do that for the low, low price of $9 million, all right? I'm not, I'm not or, or three easy payments of $3 million, however, you know, however you, you choose to think about it. Y'all, I, I say this, I, I, can, I appreciate fine art, you know, as much as the next guy, I guess. But I just, I can't see it. And I, I, was, I was looking at this painting, it's, it's beautiful. I'm looking at the price tag and I, I see, and I have some, you know, context for that. But I just, I can't see how these things go together. Like how, if, if I had $9 million lying around, I just can't imagine that I would want to put it toward that one thing, that, a, a painting, any painting for that matter, Monet or otherwise. I, you know, it's, it's possible uh, that there are things we kind of, we can see and we recognize them for what they are, but we can't really get it. I see it, but I don't get it. I see it, but I can't see it the way other people see it so much that they would take uh, from their wealth and spend it on something that small and, uh, you know, and, and fleeting, temporary, right? I just don't see it. Well, you know, this summer, as we, as we walk through this little series we're doing this summer, we're trying to kind of put some things together in our own minds and hearts, something that's really very important to our faith, that when you hold a Bible in your hand, so often we see, especially the Old Testament, we see all sorts of stories, very famous stories, you know, Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David, great stories. Most of us learned them when we were children. But we don't really see how maybe those things in the old relate to the new. And we might see like a, some sort of kind of disjointed collection of stories and laws and and all sorts of things that go into it, but we don't necessarily see the connection or the overall point. And so one of the things we're taking a few weeks to do this summer is to understand how the, the, the Bible really tells us one cohesive, unified, great big story. That God, in all of the Bible, is really doing one great thing in the world and in history. And the great thing God is doing has its focus and its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And we, we, don't, we didn't make this idea up. Jesus actually gave us this idea from his own mouth several different times in his ministry. Jesus says the scriptures, which is what we mean when we say the Old Testament, the scriptures, Jesus says, were actually written all about him. 
All of the Bible was written ultimately to point us to Jesus, meaning that even in the Old Testament, when we don't see the person of Jesus by name, we still see him in everything that God is doing and pointing to. So we're taking eight or nine weeks in the summertime now to unpack this idea a little bit, the one great narrative of the Bible. Today, as I mentioned to our kids, we're going to survey the amazing story of Joseph from the latter chapters of Genesis. Now, when I say survey, that's exactly what I mean. It's too big of a story for us to go into every detail. We're going to have to leave some details out. It would take you half an hour, honestly, to really read Genesis 37 through 50. I'd I'd encourage you to do that this week. But it's also, I know for a lot of us, it's a story we're already familiar with. It's a powerful story of betrayal and forgiveness, of, of despair, but also of hope, of integrity and faith. But our goal today is not simply to see Joseph all by himself. The story stands on on its own in so many ways, yes, but all along in the story of Joseph, God is painting a greater landscape for us to see. Or we could say it like this, all along in this story today, God is actually carving out for us a path to Jesus. And my hope is that in the short time that we share together, that the path will become a little clearer and maybe a little straighter as we go. And so I'm going to give a little refresh here, 45 seconds at most here, about where we've been to this point. Um, We saw, I guess, two weeks ago when Austin preached, God, God chose and called a man named Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, God said, is going to be the father of a great nation. And through Abraham's offspring or through Abraham's seed, All the nations of the earth will be blessed. From this one person, Abraham, God is going to bless the entire world. And of course, that is a prophecy that is meant to point us to Jesus all by itself. But it's the unfolding of the promise that we then see. God gives Abraham and his wife, Sarah, a miracle child, a young boy named Isaac. Later on, Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, have two very famous sons, one named Jacob and one Esau. And of those two, God chooses Jacob to be uh, the father of 12 sons who will then become the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, God renames Jacob Israel, and the nation then comes from his sons. And so if you you read Genesis, you you read all of that stuff, but there's there's an interesting thread that runs through all of these stories that really from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve and on through, we encounter in Genesis a tremendous amount of dysfunction, lots of family dysfunction and drama, and it really marks so much of the stories that we read because it shapes how things uh, turn out. And so one of the things that I tried to mention with our kids a moment ago is the dysfunction that we call parental favoritism. Some of us, I hope I'm wrong, but some of us perhaps have come to know that personally, what that feels like. But certainly, whether it happens now and and if it happened back in Genesis, and it 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 certainly did, it causes so many problems, it's hard to to quantify. And parental favoritism, which was a problem for uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Remember, Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. It becomes a problem again in the life of Joseph, where Jacob is now the father, repeating the sins of his own parents. So let's pick up here in Genesis 37 now and get some context for what Joseph and his family was dealing with. Genesis 37, verse 2, and we'll put these on the screen. Joseph, when 17 years of age, 
was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel, that's the father Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic, a coat of many colors. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now, if you don't know this story, you can probably guess where it's heading. Joseph is dad's favorite. He also appears to be a little bit of a goody two-shoes, okay? And so his brothers hate him. They already hate him. Now, if you continue to read in chapter 37, it gets worse, not better, because Joseph comes to his family with a dream he's had. And he shares within this dream where his entire family is bowing down to him as he rules over them, in spite of him being the youngest or the younger among his brothers. Well, that was the last straw. For his brothers, that was it. They didn't just hate him now, they wanted him dead. And so they began to conspire to kill him. And so one day we read Joseph comes out to meet them in the far out pasture. And when they realize they've got him all to themselves, they assault their brother, they strip away his fancy tunic, and they throw him into a pit. Intending to kill him, they have a change of heart at the last minute. And instead they decide that they'll just sell him away into slavery. Once they've sold him away, they cover his tunic in animal blood to make it appear that he's been mauled and killed by a wild animal, and they use that to convince their father that he's gone. So while uh, Israel, Jacob, uh, weeps over the loss of his son, Joseph is in fact not dead. He's been shuttled off to Egypt, where he becomes a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar. Now, to this point in the story, things have taken a downward turn, and that's, that's you know, putting it pretty mildly. Joseph had, I mean, when the chapter began, Joseph had uh, quite a bit going for him. He was his father's favored son. He, he stood to gain a tremendous inheritance. He was uh, deeply loved and protected by his dad. Uh, he had a family, even though there was a, a good bit of dysfunction there. He had a lot going for him. And then all of a sudden, everything is dashed to pieces. He's got nothing. He's got less than nothing. He's not at zero now. He's He's in the red. He's got nothing to his name and no prospect for a future at all. He thinks, I'm sure he was as good as dead. But y'all, even in the face of this terrible spite and betrayal and misery, what we see taking place in these chapters, the scripture affirms for us something we wouldn't expect and maybe wouldn't guess. Just a little verse here from Genesis 39, verse 2. Look at what happened even in the midst of this great darkness. The scripture says the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And if you read through Genesis 39, it's, it's, you could almost say everything Joseph touched turned to gold. Everything he did, even as a slave in Potiphar's house, everything he did, God granted him favor, favor in the eyes of his employer, and Joseph was treated not so much like a slave, but almost like a son. Things were turning up for him, even in the midst of this great darkness. Um, but if you continue to read the story, things turn south again. Joseph is double-crossed again, this time by his employer's wife. And as a result of her lies, he's thrown into prison. Right? He's in prison, all right? Now things have really gotten bad. But again, 
Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. So things continue to go bad for Joseph, and yet, even though everybody else has forsaken him, the Lord has not. And all seems lost, perhaps, but the Lord continues to grant Joseph his love and grace and favor, even turning other people's hearts to show him favor. And so this carries on, y'all. And, you know, I, when I read, if you read the story, you can read it in a half an hour, and so it doesn't seem like all that long, perhaps. But we're not talking days or weeks in prison or even months. He was in prison for years. Years. This went on. Until one day, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, begins to have very troubling dreams. Dreams that no one in his kingdom can interpret for him. At which point, a former prisoner who is in the Pharaoh's court raises his hand and says, I know a man in prison, a Hebrew, who can interpret dreams. He interprets them right on the spot, perfectly. And so Pharaoh's intrigued. He calls for this Hebrew prisoner to be brought before him. That's Joseph. And because the Lord was with Joseph, because his favor was upon him, because he gave him the ability to interpret dreams, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams perfectly and fully. He says to him, there are going to be seven years of plenty in the land, of great increase and abundant harvest like we've never before seen. But immediately following, there's going to be seven years of terrible famine, of no planting and reaping. Now, Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph and his interpretation that he raises him up now to be second in command in all of Egypt. And he puts Joseph in charge of this whole program of overseeing the production of the harvest and the holding back of the necessary crops so that they'll be able to distribute the increase when the famine comes. Joseph is in charge of it all. Now, here's where the story gets really interesting, okay? When the famine comes, it doesn't just affect Egypt. It affects all the surrounding lands, including Joseph's family back home. Israel, that is Jacob, and his 11 remaining sons, they're touched by the famine also. Egypt alone is well-stocked and prepared for all of this. And so these rascally brothers who had forsaken their brother Joseph so long ago they are now forced to come to Egypt in hopes of buying bread that they might survive. And it's there that Joseph lays eyes on his brothers for the first time since that day they sold him away. Only they don't recognize him. And so here these men come and they are bowing down before him just as Joseph dreamed they would so many years ago. And now Joseph is the one holding their lives in his hands. It's the great reversal. Now, y'all, there's a lot of complexity in how all this goes down, but Joseph, who possesses all the power now to destroy these treacherous brothers, he instead forgives them and restores them to all his good graces. He reveals himself to them in tears. He embraces them, and he treats them with kindness rather than with vengeance. He even brings them into a good land called Goshen, where they can thrive again as families and pasture their flocks. It's a, um, we, when we read this story, we are stirred by the fact that there's so much forgiveness and reconciliation despite such a great betrayal. Right? Now, I used to read that story. I just summarized it for us. 
I used to read that story and think, what an awesome picture of how we're supposed to be to our family and our loved ones, that even though people have sinned against us, we can forgive and we can be reconciled. And certainly, it is a picture that's meant to show us all those things. But that's not it. That's not all. I mentioned this a moment ago. God is doing something greater than only that, than only what meets the eye. And Joseph certainly understood this, even if no one else in the moment did. Y'all, look at Genesis 45 at what Joseph says to his brothers concerning all that has happened and his understanding of God's role in it. This is, this is absolutely fascinating. Joseph is receiving his brothers back in forgiveness, and here's why. Look at what he says. Genesis 45, verse 5. Joseph says to them, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are yet still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, the third time he's saying this, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, think about what Joseph is saying right there. You sent me here to die, but in reality, God sent me here so that you may live. I'm going to repeat that. You sent me here to die, but actually God sent me here so that you may live. God sent me here, Joseph says, for the saving of many lives. So not just you, my brothers, not just the remnant of the people of Israel, but also the Gentiles, right? The Egyptians and all the nations that were surrounding them that were able to come and buy bread to sustain life in the midst of the famine. There's a much bigger view that God has for what's taking place here and that we ought to have as well. Joseph understood it, that this, is, this was not primarily a story about jealous brothers who betray and the victim brother who prevails in spite of their treachery and then forgives them. Certainly, that's a big part of it, but that's not all. This is a story, Joseph says, about how God providentially works out his plan of redemption for the world. And and Moses last week did a great job of explaining providence, that God doesn't just see things that human beings are doing, He sees to the things that he desires to do and that it's his goodwill to accomplish. God is seeing to his plan of redemption for the world right here at the end of Genesis. So y'all, enter into the matrix with me here for just a second, okay? This makes sense to me. Correct me if it doesn't make sense to you when we're done. But to me, this this is really incredible. Think back to when Joseph's brothers hated him and decided to kill him. They rip off his tunic and throw him into a pit. But they have a change of heart at the last minute. Because there was one brother who talked the rest of the brothers out of killing Joseph. His name was Judah. Judah said, he is our own flesh. Let us not kill him. Let's sell him away instead. Not, I mean, he's, Judah's not the noble person here, okay? 
It was still sin, but perhaps a lesser sin. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. Now think about this. What if Judah had kept his mouth shut and went along with the plan to murder their brother? Joseph would have never gone to Egypt. Pharaoh would have never known to prepare for the coming famine. And a great many people would have starved to death as a result, including Jacob and his 11 remaining sons. They all would have died. That's why Joseph says to them, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. God sent me to Egypt to keep you alive, Joseph says. So Judah's advice to keep Joseph alive results in the preservation of Judah and his family and his brothers. They're alive because of Joseph going to Egypt. Now, did anybody significant end up coming from the line of Judah? Jesus Christ was born from the line of Judah. God is orchestrating all of this. Joseph understood it, including God working through terrible human evil, the worst of human evil. And yet God is doing all this to produce something eternally good. He's preserving his covenant people and his covenant promise so that he might bring a savior for the world. The seed of the woman, which is the seed of Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. That's Jesus Christ. If Judah and his brother starve to death, the covenant's broken. Y'all, when God wanted to save the world, he didn't just pluck a person named Jesus into existence. He brought a son of promise through the line of Judah, through Israel, to fulfill God's promises for Israel and the world. And so God, right here and now, is working even through the evil that the brothers intended to bring about a good result, not just for Joseph, but for them and for us. And so this is what we mean when I say that that in the story of Joseph, God is carving out a path to Jesus. It's absolutely true in in terms of the circumstances. Everything that happens in this story preserves God's covenant people for the sake of blessing the world. But that's that's not all. There's more. Um, Joseph doesn't just get us to Jesus in terms of his family tree. Joseph points us to Jesus and how uh, he acts and how the story around him unfolds. So we've only hit the highlights. We haven't touched on every single uh, detail. But let, let me recap this great narrative for us, okay, in one short paragraph. We have here in this story a favored son rejected by his brothers. And when he comes to them, they hate him and seek to kill him. And they assume that they've gotten rid of him for good. He's as good as dead now to them. But God raises him up. And in raising him up, he becomes a blessing both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, that the nations are now blessed by him for the saving of many lives. And even when his sinful brothers return to him, poor and needy, bowing down before him, he does not take vengeance on them as they deserve, but he receives them and forgives them and grants them new life. Now, does that sound like anybody else we know? The connections here are meant to stir us deep down. This story is a prefiguring of the gospel. 
that what we see in Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, the true favored Son, sent by the Father into the world to His own, His own brethren, the Jews. And the Apostle John tells us that He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. And in fact, they hated Him. Hated Him enough to seek to put Him to death. Now, the parallels are not exact. We don't see that Jesus is Joseph in every sense because, you know, on one hand, whereas Joseph was actually spared of his life and sent away, Jesus was not spared. The Father sent the Son, Jesus, into the world to die on a cross. And whereas Joseph was raised up out of slavery and into prominence, Jesus was actually raised up out of the grave, from the dead, raised in now divine and glorious resurrection life. And so, of course, Jesus um, overwhelms Joseph in every sense of the word. But we see the overlap, y'all. I hope we see it. That Jesus, having been put to death and then raised again, is now able to save to the uttermost, to save completely everyone who draws near to God through him, whether Jew or Gentile. All the nations of the earth are blessed because of the seed of Abraham, the one who came from the tribe of Judah. And y'all, where that hits us right now in 2022, the truth that the brothers of Joseph experienced, we may now experience to an infinitely greater degree, that no matter how poor and needy you are, no matter how dark and deep the stain of sin is in your life, no matter how far gone you may feel, anyone, may come to Jesus Christ in faith. And when we come to Him, we may be certain that we will receive grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. That we will come to Him, and, and in coming to Him, we will not receive vengeance for our sins, but we will be brought near and treated mercifully. We will be brought in, and we will not be cast out. We will receive new and abundant life. That's what it means to come to Jesus Christ. And y'all, there's this amazing uh, turn that occurs when Jesus comes into the world as God's son, the scripture begins to refer to him as our brother. That we become children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus. That's how intimate and precious this relationship is that God has granted to us. That the favored son has become our brother and our brother has now received us to himself and made us a part of his family. And so, in, y'all, in all of this, I, I, I want us to, to see the connection here. And my hope is, you know, as, as we kind of round this corner, we, we shouldn't walk out the doors this morning saying, that was interesting. I never thought of it that way. I hope we see it at the deepest level as something that shows us who God really is. Not just trivia as to how the Bible connects one to the next, but who God is and how God's grace actually comes to us. And so let's, let's conclude with that. If you're familiar with this story, then you know the, the most famous thing Joseph ever said. It comes at the very end of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph, speaking to his brothers now, kind of gives a summary of the whole story. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. What you meant for evil against me, God meant for good to bring about this present result. Y'all, now again, I've always taken that to mean, Joseph says, you meant to harm me, but God meant to bless me. Na-na-na-na-na-na. Right? 
that's not what Joseph is saying. And of course, it's true that God blessed him individually, personally, but Joseph has a much bigger idea in mind here. What you meant for evil, God was actually superintending and orchestrating, not just for my personal good, but for the good of many, for the saving of many lives. A great many people God has saved and preserved now through and over and above what you intended against me. And so the evil intention of the brothers has brought about a good result, not just for Joseph, but even for them, even for the ones who perpetrated this betrayal to begin with. They are now experiencing the good result, the grace of God, in spite of their sin. It's an amazing turn of events. Their evil intentions, in the end, save them because God has been merciful to them through their brother. Now think about how this connects to the bigger story. I want to read for you Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter, on the day we call Pentecost, when he stands up to proclaim the gospel to his fellow Jews. Look at what he says and see the connection. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. We see the message. What Peter's saying, God, in his good providence, orchestrated the events of the cross. The cross was God's idea. It was God's predetermined plan for his son to come and die. And yet, without contradiction, Peter says to his fellow Jews, you nailed him to the cross. You're guilty for his death. Your hearts are evil and ungodly. But of course, that's the whole point. What you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many lives. It's only through the evil and the suffering of the cross that Jesus now brings salvation to the world. If we read the early chapters of, of Joseph's story, we think, how could anything worse possibly happen? And then we come to the Gospels and we look at the cross and we think, oh my goodness, how could anything worse possibly happen? How could any good thing come out of something so evil? What men intended for evil, God meant for good, for the salvation of the world. And so think about in the story of Joseph, it's the sinful brothers who in the end are saved and forgiven and reconciled. And in Acts chapter 2, you nailed him to the cross. But Peter's not saying that to condemn them. He's preaching the gospel to them. And those who were guilty of rejecting Christ and seeing him die, now they're hearing of the salvation that the risen Christ has come to give. And on that very same day, 3,000 of those men trust in Jesus and are saved. Those who were guilty have now received the reconciling grace of God. What they meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many lives. Y'all, 
sin should always and only result in judgment. That's just how the math ought to go. Sin, my sin, me, my sin should always and only result in judgment. But that's not how it goes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells a different story. It doesn't deny our sinfulness. In fact, we're more sinful than we even thought. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, God has not treated us as our sins deserve. Because God was willing to send his own son to stand in our place, his own son who would bear the full force of sin and evil who would take our judgment upon himself in our stead so that we might be forgiven and reconciled and made fully alive in union with our brother, Jesus Christ. And now by faith in him, not by any good works we do, not by our best intentions, not by all our religious works, by nothing at all we bring to the table, only by grace that is given to us. We receive Jesus Christ in faith and we are brought near once and for all. And so when we speak of Jesus as the true and better Joseph, the one who is reflected in this story today, but who um, uh, uh, superabounds Jesus Christ, God sent him for the saving of many lives. What the world intended against Jesus For evil and sending him to the cross, God meant for good so that we might have life in his name. And so we get to today, right where we sit, come to him, receive him, and receive from him all the life now that he delights to give us. The saving of many lives in Ridgeland, Mississippi, this many years later, because God in his grace saw to it that his son would be our savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray and and hope that I have not confused us. I pray, Lord, that that you, by your Spirit, will make things very plain and simple and clear to our hearts and our minds. That we might see this, this incredible path carved out that takes us from Joseph to Jesus, Lord, that shows us what it is for you, Father, not just to, to come around on the backside of evil and, and reverse it and make it good, Lord, but that, that your great plan for the saving of many lives, Lord, encompasses everything. That, Lord, we, we on our own cannot derail, Lord, what you've purposed to do. And we thank you, Lord, that Joseph's brothers are, are in a sense, uh, uh, our elder brothers. We're very much like them. Father, we are sinners. We have, we have a great many regrets. We are, if we're honest, we know we're covered in guilt and shame, and we come poor and needy to Jesus. And so I pray, Father, that you'd help us to see that in our coming to him, Lord, we don't come to a hard and exacting 
revenge-minded brother, but a gracious one, a loving brother. Lord, who sees through our sin, who takes on our sin, who uh, now brings us in and makes us his own. Entirely because he is merciful and gracious and good. Thank you, Father, that you would send Jesus Christ into the world. That you, Lord, would see to it that his death, Lord, would be counted for us as taking on our condemnation so that we might be forgiven and made free. And that in his raising up, Lord, you raised him up again to put an end to death, that we might have life forever in his name. Father, thank you that, that in, in all history, Lord, you've had one clear, decisive, wonderful plan in your heart that we are now a part of. Lord, you looked upon a world of sinners. And rather than rejecting us and sending us away, you entered in to make us your own, to save us, because you are rich in mercy. Lord, I pray that, uh, that we would find this morning this precious truth, that in our own darkness, Lord, you are near you are close. You love us. And Lord, you are the light that outshines it all. Let us turn to you and receive of your son this morning all that he delights to give us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.